0: Hello, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard. I pastor Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thanks so much for joining me today as we continue marching through the New Testament. And we are coming to a uh, conclusion here in the Gospels, as this whole year we've just been looking at the life of Jesus. And today we come to Luke 22, Luke only has 24 chapters. So we are uh, coming toward the the close of the gospels. And we see Jesus undergoing trial today. So we're going to we're going to pop in to the life of Jesus toward the end of his life and witness a couple of trials that are recorded for us in the book of Luke chapter 22 starting with verse 54. I think what I'll do is just read it straight through 54 to 71 which is the end of the chapter and then uh, come back through and share some thoughts luke twenty-two fifty-four. having arrested him jesus they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest but peter was following at a distance after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together peter was sitting among them And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming or blaspheming. That's probably a more natural way to read that. When it was the day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. All right. Jesus under trial, which is a little bit ironic, isn't it? I shouldn't say a little bit. Quite ironic. Since he is the one whom God appointed to judge the world, According to Acts 17, we'll look at that here in a few weeks, where Paul is preaching at Mars Hill. He says, God has proved that he's going to judge the world through a man he has appointed, and he's given you proof by raising him from the dead. (laughs) So, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We see that clearly in this passage. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. Son of God, son of man, judge of the world, all of creation, since he is also creator. And he is here under trial. Interesting. Well, I want you to think of yourself a little bit as we go through this and consider how you too are under trial in this life. And uh, I, I might be saying that in a way that you don't immediately connect with, so I'll Fill out that thought as we go along. But I want you to think about your own hmm, backbone, I guess, that you may or may not have when it comes to pursuing truth and standing up for truth, pursuing Jesus and standing up for Jesus, pursuing the substance of faith and actually exercising that faith. Because in this life, we go through a lot of things that... Test our faith. We go through, we're put in circumstances, I guess, and we have people around us who influence us dramatically and may cause us to act in a very fleshly way if we give in to these worldly temptations. So those are some high-level thoughts that I want you just to kind of have in your head right now. And as we go through this, I I want to come back around to that and, again, fill out the picture, color it a little more. But I want to put that in your head from the beginning. Well, let's go back here to starting in verse 54 with Jesus' arrest. This is the famous scene where Peter denies Jesus three times, as Jesus told him he would do. I mean, isn't that amazing also? Jesus said this was going to happen, and it did. He stated plainly that... uh, He would be denied three times before the rooster crowed. And here we are. Well, Jesus was arrested and was led away to the high priest, which is interesting. They go to the house of the high priest. This would be the really influential religious guy in Israel who was going to examine Jesus. This wasn't like an official trial. The high priest didn't have any power to punish Jesus, like put him to death. Uh, Things like that. And so this is like an initial examination that does carry with it some major implications as we get down the road here. But this isn't the trial. That comes with the Sanhedrin there at the end of the chapter that we looked at. This is Jesus meeting with the high priest to be initially examined by him. And while Jesus is meeting with this high priest and they have this extended time together. We see Peter in the courtyard of the house. So he's likely uh, at a a big house, and in the courtyard there are servants. And the first person that we see interacting with Peter is a servant girl. A servant girl seeing Peter in the firelight and staring at him. Looking intently means to, to stare at. She's just staring at him and says, Hey, Jesus who's here... That the high priest is meeting with the one Jesus, this guy who's causing the big stir here. This man here that I'm looking at in the glow of this fire, he was with him, and immediately Peter denies it. Woman, I don't know him. Wow, that's like basically saying, No, you're crazy. That's that's his instinct, because of course, by admitting that he knew Jesus who'd be implicating himself and he too would then be on trial and he would be personally affected here, wouldn't he? And he says that he doesn't know him, which is strange because the whole reason that he's there is because he does know him and loves him. He followed the, the men who were taking Jesus into custody and bringing him to the high priest. He followed them. And he went there because he cares. He's a disciple. He loves Jesus. And yet, he's denying Jesus. He puts himself in a position where he has to confess Jesus because he loves him. Yet, when he's in that position, his impulse is to deny him because he also loves himself, doesn't he? There's self-preservation at play. Very fascinating. This is like an amazing psychological thing that's going on. Right. Well, after he denies this of the servant girl, there's another person who sees him and says, you are one of them, too. One of those disciples, one of those Christians, one of those members of the way. But Peter said, man, I am not. So he could have just up and left here. He could have left after the first one. Right. But he's still there because he cares about Jesus. He's still hanging around. And he's recognized again, and he denies that he has association with Jesus. And he's using strong terms, saying, no, absolutely, I do not know him. So Peter is unequivocally denying him. He's not trying to wiggle his way out of this. He's just straight up denying. He's lying. There's no sugarcoating it. That's what's going on here. Well, then, uh, interestingly, it's after about an hour. So he's been just hanging around. After about an hour, there was another man who was insisting, yeah, he's this guy's a Galilean. Why is a Galilean in our courtyard? He knows Jesus. He knows this man. He was with him. And I'm sure Peter had that Galilean accent, you know, uh, that was recognized by these people. I don't know if it sounded like a Mississippian accent today or Alabama guy. Probably not. But he had some sort of distinguishing feature. He was being recognized, pegged as a disciple of Jesus. And then he responds, a very interesting response. I do not know what you are talking about. Like, that doesn't even make any sense. I I don't even understand what you're saying. I don't know what on earth you're trying to say. (laughs) When, of course, he knows full well exactly what this man is saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking... A rooster crowed, just as Jesus said. This happened exactly as Jesus said, which is amazing. Uh, Jesus knew it was going to happen and didn't stop it. Peter knew it was going to happen because Jesus told him, and he still lived it. He still carried it out. Uh, Just amazing. And then we're not told how this happened, but the fact of the matter is, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. It's conceivable that Jesus was being led from one room to another or something. They were passing through the courtyard, and they had this moment. But Jesus locks eyes with Peter, his disciple, who had just denied him. How piercing was that glance. Talk about a moment that would be forever ingrained in Peter's memory. This is it. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And the Lord turned and looked. Peter remembered now. It it hit him. Oh, yes, that's right. Jesus said this was going to happen. Before a rooster crows today, he will deny me three times. There it is. And the only response that's appropriate, it says uh, Peter went out and wept bitterly which is correct. That's what should happen. So Peter here is also on a little bit of a trial of his own, isn't he? Uh, Jesus is on trial, but Peter here is being questioned, and he does not pass the test. He does not tell the truth. He denies Jesus three times, fulfilling Jesus's prophecy that was issued just very recently, that a rooster was going to Crow, but before that, Peter would deny him three times. So Peter's in a bad state, and that's the last we see of Peter in this passage. Next, we see Jesus being taken by those who were holding him in custody, and he's being mocked and beaten. They're mocking him and beating him. Then they blindfold him and mock him in this way, saying, Hey, yeah, you say you're a prophet. Who just hit you? You can't see anything. And they're just blaspheming over and over again with all these things that they're saying. Now, this was, again, no surprise, just like Peter denying him wasn't a surprise. Jesus said in Luke eighteen thirty-two and 33, speaking of himself, for he, the Messiah, will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So here we have a partial fulfillment of that. This isn't, of course, the only time he was mocked and beaten and spat upon, but this is a key time when that was happening. And they were blaspheming, saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Why was this blasphemy to speak against him? Like, was it blasphemy to speak against Peter? Well, no, it's blasphemy to speak against Jesus because Jesus is God. And so you speak against him. You're committing blasphemy. That's what these men were doing. And uh, boy, it's so tragic. Can you imagine having been there at that time to see Jesus in the flesh and you mock him, you beat him, spit upon him, blaspheme him to his face, mistreat him. You're a part of the mob that kills him. Well, the sad reality is, that is, of course, all of us in our natural state at heart, we are all persecutors of Jesus. In our hearts, we are rebellious. Jesus is Lord of all. He's creator of all things. And each time we sin, we're like... Sticking, I mean, a nice way to put it would be like sticking our palm up in the face of, of of Jesus and saying, no, no, I don't want anything to do with you. Go away. Go die. Go away from me. I mean, that that's the ugliness of sin. I mean, if you wanted to put it a little more graphically and perhaps more accurately, it would be giving the middle finger to God. Be giving the middle finger to the Son of God and saying, no, uh." I'm my own boss. I'm my own Lord. I do not need your ways. That's who we are at heart. We are blasphemers. We're rebellious. We're sinful. And it's hard for some people to accept that. But the fact that it's hard to accept that kind of proves the point that we're prideful people who like to be our own gods. We want to be our own gods. And this is uh, the scene where Jesus is being beaten is just a, a playing out in the real world what's going on in each person's heart. And it's absolutely tragic. They took Jesus into custody. They mocked him. They beat him. They blindfolded him, continued to mock him some more. They blasphemed against him. That's the problem with sin. It leads to that in the flesh but it all starts in the heart and it starts in every person's heart. Well, then he goes to the Sanhedrin and it says when it was the day, so time has passed the council of elders. That's the Sanhedrin in Israel, like the Supreme court or the Senate in Israel, they all assembled both chief priests and scribes and led him away to their chamber. And they, they give him this command. If you are the Christ, Then tell us. So, even just giving a command to Jesus, uh, wow. I mean, we have to stop and feel the weight of that. If you're the Christ, tell us. Not that they were seeking true faith in this, not that they wanted to believe. Not that they were going to be fair, not that they were going to be honest, not that they were going to be genuine in this whole process, but they're giving him a command to try to trap him in his words. They're giving a command to try to further persecute him. So you have Jesus being beaten up by those who had him in custody, and you have him now being mocked by the religious leaders. So not just the blue-collar guys who were the uh, people who shuttled prisoners around, but now the the, the top religious dogs— in their community. Here they are saying, "Okay, Jesus, if if you if you're the Messiah, tell us." Let's let's just get down to it here. Go ahead and condemn yourself with your own words. That's what they're essentially saying. They're inviting him to do that. Well, Jesus is a master wordsmith, and he doesn't simply say, "Yes, I am the Christ." He says <laughs> he responds to their if with an if of his own. <laughs> they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he says, if I tell you, you will not believe. How utterly, absolutely true this is. They weren't seeking true faith. He knew that if he answered their question the way that they wanted him to answer it, it wasn't going to matter. They would not believe. that, And, and that's what's most important. I mean, the reason why Jesus says that is because that's what's most critical here, is that they would repent and recognize the kingdom of God standing in front of them, that they would believe in Jesus. And then he says, another if, if I ask you a question, you will not answer. They don't recognize Jesus's authority. They don't recognize that they are to obey and submit to all that Jesus puts before them. So he, he confirms their lack of belief. He confirms their rebellion. If I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask a question, you will not answer. And then, as one commentator puts it, he gives them more than they had bargained for. And he tells them in verse 69 here, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's quoting Psalm 110. There's also some connections to Daniel chapter 7 here, but... He's quoting from Psalm 110, and he includes this very interestingly because he's saying, you are seeking to be my judge, yet I'm here to tell you, I am your judge. You're wanting to lord your authority over me, but I have all authority over you. You're wanting to exercise sovereignty that you've been given, but I have all sovereignty. Jesus here is putting them in their place with their own scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And what he quotes is that he will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He takes this Old Testament term, the Son of Man, and applies it to himself. He does that consistently throughout the Gospels. It's his favorite term for himself, the Son of Man. And he says... That from that point forward, he's going to the very presence of God, and he'll be at his right hand in, in his power. Now, the problem with this, because their ears are going to perk up at this point, and the, their problem, their issue is going to be, how could a mere man like you, and from their perspective, a sinful man, a guilty, impure man, how could he be in the at the right hand of the power of God? because they didn't believe they would be at the right hand of the power of God. The only person who could be at the right hand of the power of God is someone who has this equal nature with God. Because a a sinner or a mere creature would be utterly consumed instantaneously at the right hand of the power of God. Well, Jesus says that's where he's going. After this trial, that's where I'm headed. And they're thinking, no, you're going to die like a sinner. They're thinking, you're going to die as the mere man that you are, that you're, you're a small blasphemer. They had the roles reversed, didn't they? They believed Jesus was a blasphemer. He couldn't go to the right hand of the power of God. However, Jesus says that's exactly where he's going. So not only is he denying their charges, not only is he uh, denying that he is a mere man, He is stating effectively that he is equal in nature with God, able to be at his right hand in that power, exercising authority with God. That's a pretty bold statement. So they reply with, "Uh, Are you the son of God then? (laughs) Gee, you think? And he said to them, Yes, I am. So here it is, three little words in English. He just affirms it. Yes, I am. And then they said, what, what more do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. He has just condemned himself. Himself, not his self. He has just condemned himself by saying he's the son of God and he will be at the right hand of the power of God, that he's the son of man. They were done with him, and they were ready for him to be crucified. Wow. How wrong they got it. They got it so wrong. They did not recognize Jesus as Lord. They did not believe in Jesus. They did not submit to his lordship. They did not have faith in who he was. They weren't humble. They were a very, very bad council of judges. And they were to be judged for what they did. But let's, uh, let's bring this back home to those high-level thoughts I gave you at the beginning. So you've basically got three mm, scenes happening, Peter in the courtyard, the men who had Jesus in custody beating him and mocking him, and then Jesus before the Sanhedrin, this council of religious leaders. Now, if you're someone who, maybe you've been listening to these videos, maybe you've been listening to stuff online, maybe you've just been reading your Bible, that would be the best. And you are like on the fence with Jesus, where on the one hand, you totally see what the truth is, that Jesus is the one true God of the universe, that the Godhead consists of Father, Son, and Spirit, that Jesus, the Son of God, walked among us and as a pure and spotless lamb died in our place for our sins, rose again on the third day, that we may be made right with God by simply believing in what he has done. As we look to the Christ who has ascended on high, we too can be exalted in him through faith alone, and it's all of grace, not of works. Maybe you've recognized that, and that would be wonderful. But on the other hand, maybe you're like Peter, where you followed him all the way to the courtyard, and now you are questioning Uh, in front of people, whether what you recognize as truth really is the truth. Maybe instead of a servant girl, you're interacting with a sister or a cousin or a neighbor or a mother or a father. And you, in the moment of needing to exercise faith, you freak out. You, You bail. You bail out on Jesus. And you do not have a backbone in that moment to affirm truth. Or perhaps you feel like you're on trial with those around you. And these people around you maybe are very religious, like the Sanhedrin. And they're asking you all sorts of questions, and they make you very uncomfortable. But in those moments, instead of standing up for truth, you capitulate. And you have fear of man. You have a fear of your own Sanhedrin, whatever that may, may be, instead of a true fear of God that causes you to or, or, or motivates you to speak up for truth and to publicly confess the true Jesus Christ in moments of questioning or moments of difficulty. Is that you? Are, are you someone who has been on the fence in that way? Well, I'm, I want to urge you today to get off that fence. If you have a believing heart, if you're someone who trusts in the biblical gospel, today is the day for you to make that publicly known and to stop fearing man. Jesus told us that discipleship is very costly, that you will lose the dearest relationships you have, You maybe even will lose material things. But none of that matters if you have Jesus, because Jesus plus nothing else equals everything. You don't need anything else if you have truly Jesus. And next week, I believe it's next week, yeah, yeah, next week, we're going to consider this some more through the life of Joseph of Arimathea, the man in whose tomb Jesus was buried, because he was a secret disciple. And we'll, uh, we'll consider this whole secrecy stuff, not standing up for Jesus stuff, even more next week. Thanks for listening. If you haven't been reading your Bible, go read your Bible, and go read about the life of Jesus and how he would call you to live. God bless.